This episode of the Braving Business Podcast is sponsored by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit, and I've been in the domestic and international logistics space for over 30 years. If you need any assistance with transportation or logistics, my team and I will jump at the chance to help. Whether it be parcel shipments, e-commerce, pallets and freight, full truckload, international air and ocean, imports, exports, warehousing and distribution, or really anything under the logistics umbrella, we got you covered. For more details, please go to shipwithpj.com. That's shipwithpj.com. Reach out to me there. Mention you found me on this podcast for a special surprise. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. Well, hello there. Hello there, 2024. Woo, we made it. <laughs> we made it indeed. I'm I'm quite excited about it. I know obviously the season has already begun. I'm not quite sure when this episode will run. Uh, and the episode season two be actually started uh, being released after January 1st. But this is actually the first episode we are recording after January 1st. And so I've I've not seen your pretty mug. Uh, I've, I've, we have of course been communicating because we are actually, in addition to being colleagues, we're also really close friends, we are, uh, course. but it's good to see you again, my friend. How good was, how was your you, holidays? Brother. It was awesome. It was awesome. Whole family was in, um, you know, I got a daughter who lives out in Colorado. I have another daughter who, uh, just found out that she got a full-time job at the aquarium of the Pacific out in California. So she'll be moving back out there. So doing what, uh, she is an, she's an aquarist. She is, uh, she, she's going to be working with abalone. Of all things. So, you know, if you ever have a question abalone. about Abalone. I don't even know what that is. What is abalone? It's in the mollusk family. So uh, I don't know what that is either. All right, we're doing great so far. It's a great start <laughs> to the year. We're just highlighting how I know just, so, so very we're little. We're just highlighting barnacles. That's all we're doing. But that's fine. Yeah. It's, but it was great, you know, to have the whole brood together. How about you? What, how, was your, how was your holidays? Well, it was, it was amazing, actually. I, uh, I went to uh, Cancun, Mexico for... Uh, eight days with my lovely girlfriend, Aaron. And, um, I came, I, I had just turned 50 right before we left. And, uh, that was, that was lovely and came back and, and, and had sort of a low key week. Um, so just delightful, an absolutely delightful holiday season. I saw the pics. Um, we communicated while you're on your trip. Sound like you're having an amazing time and well-deserved both of you actually well-deserved. Uh, Thank Mr. You, Brian, how was, how was your holiday, sir? It was good. I was actually down in the Tampa area, so I was down in Tal's backyard. Uh, my, whole right? family's, my whole family's down there, so we flew in and all got together at Grandma's house, so she really enjoyed that. Well, where is Grandma in Tampa? She's in Land Lakes. Up oh, okay. My daughter's in all West right. Chase. My mother's in Land Lakes. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, well, we're not going to board the audience with that, but I lived right in that area for, for many years. Now I'm in South Tampa as uh, PJ knows, but, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a beautiful part of Tampa Bay. I live in Northwest Tampa, which is also known as Chicago. So, um, <laughs> a little far away, a little far away, but, uh, Brian, we are so excited to have you on, but, uh, Tal, do you, do you mind if I introduce this fine gentleman? And not only do I not mind, I insist. <laughs> don't, you don't tell me what to do. All right. So <laughs> Brian is the best-selling author of the dropout multimillionaire. And no, the psychology of sales and negotiations. He is also an expert in sales and management consulting and a serial entrepreneur with over 35 years of experience. But it wasn't a straight shot to success. Brian's first company failed, and you'll hear why in this interview. And when that happened, he lost everything that he owned, including his house and his automobiles. Fortunately, he learned valuable lessons in the process that he applied as he proceeded, which all entrepreneurs do hopefully learn from your, learn from failures and your mistakes, which we will look forward to um, and our listeners and viewers benefiting from Brian's story. Since, and after serving in the U.S. Army as well as the Air Force, Brian created seven highly successful companies across four industries worth over half a billion dollars at their peak. Today, Brian owns restaurants in Atlanta, an insurance and technology company in Denver, and a real estate business in Georgia as well as Florida. His expertise in turnaround projects and driving billions in sales makes him a sought-after consultant and speaker. 
He's now also, with a, with a spare time, a public servant uh, serving on the city council in Alpharetta, Georgia. Brian, welcome to the Braving Business Podcast. Hey, James, I appreciate you having me. It's going to be a fun uh, oh, yeah. fun episode. And that I got to see if I can cut that down. That is a lot to say about me. I, Do you think it's a lot? Me. You know what? You, 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 some of our episodes, PJ ends up talking oh, for like two minutes. Uh, I think I go. And, I, I get laryngitis. And, and that's at, yeah, and that's after uh, we edit down what, what we are handed uh, you know, from the production staff, which is very generously wants us to cite every accomplishment of our well, accomplished you know what, though, guests. We are, it's an embarrassment of riches that we have such excellent and well-tenured guests on our show. So, you know, it's all, I have it's all seen good. some of these uh, resumes on your guests. They are quite impressive. Yeah, it's I, pretty cool. I hope I can live up to it today. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm pretty sure you will. And just as a, as a funny side note, um, we, we had General Leslie Smith, the, the Inspector General of the U.S. Army, and, and PJ literally started reading about every one of the banners uh, oh or every one of the ribbons he had on his chest. And General Smith stopped him and said, you're, you're not going to do that. You, you know, we're, <laughs> we're going to not do that. So uh, fortunately, Brian, first of all, thank you for your service. I'm, I'm a military dad and, and I, I am always extremely appreciative of anyone that took the time uh, to serve their country. So thank you for your service to our country. Um, let's talk, let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. It started, uh, early. You, you, you started your first business, which did not succeed. Mine did not either. So I, uh, we share that, uh, your, yours was a landscaping business. And, uh, eventually that turned into the portfolio that, that, uh, PJ mentioned. Uh, but take us back to the moment where you realized entrepreneurship was something you felt called to do. Uh, what prompted you to feel that that was, that was the path you wanted to take? Sure. So I call this my very first one of us is stupid moments, right? So I had enough active duty, had gotten married. I didn't have a job, didn't have a car, didn't have a place to live, moved in with my grandma, was borrowing my grandfather's car. And a buddy asked me if I wanted to mow grass with him. And I said, well, how much are you going to pay me? He's like, well, four bucks an hour, but I'll pay you cash under the table. And I was like, well, I'll take that. That's a good deal, right? So I go out and start working for this landscaping business, mowing grass. And it's about two weeks in. And I was sitting in the truck looking through this book of ours where we wrote down every customer and how much money we were collecting. And I realized we were collecting about $2,000 a week. And I know I was making four bucks an hour, so that's 160. The guy beside me was making $200 because he was getting five bucks an hour. And the guy beside him was making $8 an hour. So I'm thinking, throwing some gas and whatnot. The guy that owned the business, by the way, every day we would finish mowing, we'd drive over to his house, hand him all these checks, and we'd go put the equipment away. And the next day we'd start over. He was making about a thousand a week sitting at home while I was out there killing myself for 160 bucks. And I was sitting there looking at this book and I was like, one of us is stupid. And I know which one it is. It's me. I mean, how hard is it to mow grass? So I literally quit after two weeks, no idea what I was doing, bought a lawnmower and a blower and a weed eater. And I went into business for myself. And so that's how I got started. Awesome. That's, that's awesome. I would have, uh, I suck at math. So I would have been like, Oh, everything seems fine to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is, that is very cool. So, but so you kind of, did you put everything into this, into this business? Like the whole kit and caboodle, like, like, because I had nothing, we got married and I got a couple thousand dollars in marriage money. You know, you get all those checks and then when you get married, so I spent it all on the weed eater mower and blower, borrowed a car, bought 500 sheets of paper and a magic marker. And keep landscaping, hire us, we're local. And we went and stuffed them in mailboxes. You know, this is before we had email. We had real mail before the inspector general called, of course, and told me he was going to put me in jail for stuffing mailboxes. And that's how we started. And, uh, you know, I built that up over seven years into about eight different franchises that we owned. And I, as I like to say, it did really well until it didn't. And when it well, didn't, Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about it not doing well because that was the profound setback that uh, that you experienced. That you told us about it pre-interview, um, which is everything was lost. Uh, you know, you had one customer, as I recall, had eighty uh, percent yep. uh, was eighty percent of your billing, and you had not quite built the financial safety net that you needed to be able to uh, sustain yourself through lean times, which is, by the way, a very common entrepreneurial. Yep. Uh, pitfall. Oh yeah. Um, so talk to us about that. You lost everything. That must've been very humbling. I've, I've been in those shoes. Um, yes. I, I tell entrepreneurs this today, listen, when you're building a company and you're growing, mind you, I started this when I was 21 and came from a rough background. So as my income went up, my 
lifestyle went up about 110% of my income. So I was always about 10% above what I was making, which worked as long as you're growing because you can always go back and pay that down as, as things grow. But like you said, I didn't have any financial backing. I didn't have any money in the bank. I was in debt up to my eyeballs. I had built an entire infrastructure in this company to support one client to do millions of dollars in sales. And when they fired me, I lost everything. They withheld $150,000. I bounced 130 checks in one month. The bank closed my accounts. They put me on the blacklist so you couldn't open one. My credit was shot. Oh, and by the way, I couldn't pay my health insurance. And I found out my daughter needed open heart surgery. So now I have no health insurance and I have a daughter that needs open heart surgery on top of everything else. Oh my God. Lost everything, had to lost, sold literally everything I had right down to the furniture in my living room. I tell this story, my, my mom came for Christmas and she said, you don't have any furniture. And I said, no, because we had to sell it to buy you know, food for the baby. And she's like, well, we're going to buy you furniture. So she bought us furniture for Christmas. And when she left, guess what we did? We sold We it. sold the furniture. But I needed money. I didn't need a place to sit down. I mean, that's how bad it was. Cars got repossessed. It was rough. Sold everything I had, started all over again with me, a trouble and me, a shovel and a truck. And that is so, a humbling so, experience. So listen, that, that story you're telling is a story that I as an entrepreneur, I know PJ as an entrepreneur, both of us have experienced humbling moments in our careers, very humbling moments in our career. Um, and what I've come to see uh, through the episodes we've uh, conducted so far in, in, in speaking to numerous highly successful individuals, whether they're entrepreneurs or military leaders or politicians, is the one thing they have in common is resilience. And that is obviously the theme of Braving Business. They, for some reason, are capable of not plummeting uh, and somehow, some way, scraping themselves off the floor uh, and starting over. A lot of other people, those who perhaps dabbled in entrepreneurship, but then ultimately decided it wasn't for them, have the same experience, perhaps, of they reach a certain point, they fail. And at that point, they decide, well, entrepreneurship is just not for me. And I'm going to go and I'm going to work for someone else. What was it that prompted you to not view your failure from the lens of, this isn't for me? Um, do you? I'd love for you to share with the audience what it was. And also, I'd be curious what your wife thought about it. You know, I'll give her credit. Whatever I did, she followed me 100%, never questioned me, and always backed me. So uh, that's awesome. She, she got a lot of credit in, during those days. But from my perspective, guys, I, I, I'm the kid that failed out of high school. I'm the kid that didn't go to college. I tried, I dropped out. I had no discernible skills and no education of any kind. And in my mind, the only thing I was qualified to do was dig a hole and mow grass. That's just my mentality at the time. And when things go wrong, you're either going to fold up or you're going to man up in my case. And I had a child to take care of and, and a wife at the time. I, I didn't have a choice. So you get up and you go and it sucks and you're mentally destroyed all the time, but you get up and you go and you try to figure out how to make the next thing better. I did not realize at that time in my life, the lessons I was learning. That's something you go back and connect the dots, right? Every bad thing that's ever happened led to something better in every single case in my life. Now, whether that's because it was fate or God, or whether it was because I looked for the next open door when one closed, I don't know, but I can go back and connect those dots in every single bad thing, even that failure, that landscaping company, and even not having health insurance for my child, in this case, delayed her surgery for two years and they pioneered arthroscopic surgery. If we'd had it done then, she'd have a scar from her neck to her belly button because I lost my health insurance. We had to wait. She now has a one inch scar for her open heart surgery. So even that turned into something better. You just don't see those things when you're in the middle of them. Wow. Wow. I mean, so I can, I can only imagine, well, actually I can believe the stress, right? Because every entrepreneur, this is one of the reasons why I feel our podcast resonates so well is because all, all entrepreneurs want success. They don't all share in it. We all share in failure at some, at some point you're out there, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're not feeling like you can do a lot. You can, you can dig a hole. You're married. You have a child with an unfortunate um, heart issue. The, that amount of pressure is, uh, I don't want to take my, my blood pressure right now because it's going to be high. Just listen to this. So what did you do? Like how, what was the next step where you, you steeled yourself? You, you've already given us a couple of great t-shirts, right? Things don't happen to us. They happen for us. Fold up or man up, right? Like love all that. But 
what did you do? Like, what was the, what was that, that defining step for you that allowed you to, you know, start that journey where you are today? So I go back to me, a truck and a shovel. Uh, I'm doing landscaping during the day by myself. And a buddy calls me and says, Hey, Hey, he's going to sell me the health insurance policy. I can use two years from now for my daughter. But he says, you need to come sell health insurance with me. We advertise on the Rush Limbaugh show and we got all kinds of leads. We don't know what to do with. And I was like, I am not selling insurance. That's like the worst thing in the world. And it took him six months of showing me these checks, these checks. And finally I said, okay, fine. I'm miserable landscaping. I hate what I do every single day. How do I sell insurance? He takes me out to one appointment. I go out the next week. I start selling insurance and who knew I could sell? I didn't know. Turned out within like two weeks, I was top 1% in the country for this insurance carrier. And I'm making way more money working a few hours at night than I was all day long digging holes and mowing grass. So one day I literally got in my truck and I called a buddy of mine. I said, here you go. Take it. It's your business now. I quit. I'm going to sell insurance full time. And so I started my insurance business. Coincidentally, at the same time, the internet was popping up. And because I'm ambitiously lazy, I created an, a, a, what we today call a direct-to-consumer call center. Back then, we called it virtual sales. Like I figured out a way to sell without going to see the client that nobody was allowed to do, but we got it done. And within two years, I had sold that company to a venture capital group, and it turned into a company that went public later called Connecture. So I didn't know I could sell. It was a hidden talent, but apparently I could. So I guess I could do more than dig holes at the time. And that started this whole journey into venture capital and private equity and consulting and all the stuff that I do today. Again, if my landscaping company hadn't failed, I might still be digging holes today. Who knows? Let's talk about that transition. Uh, and by the way, I, you know, I, to, to go back to things don't happen to us, they happen for us. I mean, I think that that's a, uh, a lesson that isn't easy to recognize at the moment or in the moment, in the moment mm -hmm. where things are happening in your life that feel extremely burdensome and maybe even unfair. It, the, the human tendency is to is to feel uh, sorry for oneself. It's woe is me. Mm -hmm. uh, it is only later, in hindsight, and oftentimes with the benefit of both time and experience, that you get to see why something that felt so so terrible at the time is perhaps the best thing that ever happened to you. And that's that's 100%. true professionally. It's also true in our personal lives. Let, let's talk about this transition. So you made this interesting transition from, from landscaping to insurance. Uh, we're at a time in an era where people transitioning from one industry to another is fairly common. Um, I'd be curious, what key principles have you found to be universal, right? So regardless of the industry, what are some things that you have found to be true regardless of what industry you're in? From a success standpoint, you mean? From any standpoint, success or failure for that matter. You know, uh, it's interesting. One of the things people ask me occasionally is, you know, what did you get out of the military and how did that help you in your entrepreneurial journey? And I remember I tell this story. I'm like, you know, I remember my first day in boot camp and you get there and everything's fine and they're really nice to you and they put you to bed and 4 a.m. they come through and start just jamming your beds up and down on the floor and they're screaming, they're banging trash cans and they're literally screaming in your, get out of bed, get out of bed, go, go, go. And I remember waking up that first morning thinking, I have made a horrible, horrible mistake. What am I doing here? I want to quit. Like day one, hour one, minute one, I want to quit. And we had guys on our flight that were like, we don't want to do this anymore. And the drill sergeant said, son, you don't have a choice. You signed on the dotted line. This is what you're going to do. Your other option is I'll go throw your ass in the brig. So your choice is zero. We own you. You got to go forward. And so that's what you do in the military. You just move forward no matter how bad it sucks, no matter what's going on, no matter what you feel, if you're sick and you move forward. And you know what? I find that with entrepreneurs that are successful. It doesn't matter how bad things get or how the shit hits the fan. You just figure out a way to move forward. You don't cry and whine about it. You just move forward. And that is a successful trait that makes people succeed long-term. It's the quitters don't make it. It's the people that just keep figuring it out and moving forward yeah. that are going to have all the success. It's all about the pivot, <laughs> which, which we've, we've talked on several times during this uh, podcast journey is well it's it's having the it's it's having the gumption to actually get through it the pivot itself is far easier than finding the gumption finding the 
the wherewithal to just survive it. That's true. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. And that's where a lot of, that is what separates oftentimes those who end up experiencing success from those who end up becoming oftentimes successful, happy employees of other people's businesses. Is that at that juncture, somebody either gets through it or says, I'm just not cut out for this. I, I have also likened successful entrepreneurs and honestly successful salespeople to warriors. They're warriors. They're fighters. They look for a fight. They go out and they get in the fight and they don't quit till they're done. How many warriors go, oh gosh, somebody did something wrong. I'm going to quit and not be a warrior anymore. No, that's not what a warrior does. A warrior goes out and just keeps moving forward until they're dead, quite frankly. So I find successful entrepreneurs have that warrior mentality. They've got to go out. They've got to have a fight. They've got to have something they can get in the middle of. They got. They need that adrenaline rush of, come on, we got to, we got to win. We got to win. We got to win. So yeah, warriors don't quit. This is, this is all amazing actually. And awesome. I, I tend to use the word awesome a lot. This is awesome. Um, so you, you, you start, you know, landscaping, then you get into insurance and then you get into venture capitalism and, and all this other array of things. And then you write a book. And so yeah. when did you decide to write your very, your first book, drop out the multi or drop out multimillionaire and like what prompted that? And what was the, was there like a, a main message that was like within you that you wanted to share? Tell us so, more about that. that. That wasn't actually my first book. My first oh. book, believe it or not, is called, I give the dumb kids hope. <laughs> and the story behind that is that my daughter, my kids went to private school. Remember I dropped out of high school, didn't go to college, got kicked out. I failed out actually got back in and managed to graduate, but didn't go to college, no education. My kids are in this private school because I believe in education. Yeah. Uh, and they used to get this homework like four hours a night. It used to drive me crazy. And I'd get into arguments with them like, y'all need to go to bed. It's midnight. And one night my daughter is up at 2 a.m. studying. And I walked in the kitchen. I said, honey, go to bed. She's like, daddy, you're not supporting my educational goals. I have to get good grades to get into a good college to get a good job. I said, I said honey, your, your education is not that important. You don't have to get straight A's. And she said, yes, it is. I said, well, honey, now mind you, we're living in a 10,000 square foot house. I got a beach house, a lake house, an airplane, cars, boats. I said, if it's so important, how do you explain me? And she said, daddy, we actually talked about you in school. And said, you did? She goes, yeah, we decided you give the dumb kids hope. And I was like, that is the autobiography title of my first book. It took me 10 years to write it, but I wrote that book. And then I finished it while I was out in Park City. I go skiing for like a month out there. I remember finishing the book and I walked up the street to my favorite brewery, Wasatch, and I was sitting at dinner and I had submitted that book to my editor and I sat there and I thought, I'm not done writing. I want to write a book on business now. And so I jotted down a hundred different topics on my, my iPhone while I was sitting there and went back to the condo and started writing. And six months later, I had book number two. And honestly, it started out to be a technical book and turned out to be more of a soft skills psychology book on what it takes to, to build and scale and succeed in business more than anything else, which led to my third book, The Psychology of Sales, which is not really cheesy sales tactics. It's more what's the psychology of the way people think and why they react the way they do. So both of those books are psychology based. Let's talk about that because that book, um, you know, is, 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 has, has maybe been the book that made you more of a household name than anything else. Best-selling book. Um, and in it, uh, first, I'd love for the audience to understand the title. No, The Psychology of Sales and Negotiations. What, what is behind that title? So there's a quick story. If you, you know who Richard Branson is, he wrote a book called Screw It, Just Do It years ago. And in his book, he talks about if your first offer doesn't insult them, you've offered too much. And it's a story about when he bought his island. And the basis behind that is if you are a good negotiator, pretty much you're always going to say no to the first offer. And people that are negotiating on the other side of you are almost always going to say no to the first offer. How many B2B, B2C, or any sales have you been involved with where people just go, oh, okay, that's fine. Right, I'll take that. So if we know that they're going to say no, then we need to start anchoring our sales with the bottom and the top or where we want to be, right? And so his premise is we anchor at the bottom as low as we can go. So no, the psychology of sales is really about understanding what the person standing in front of you is thinking and what they're going to do and how they're going to react, whatever it is you're saying. And so you need to build your sales process, your script, your dialogue around how they're going to react when you say or do it. If you can effectively do that, we call it overcoming objections before the client ever has them. 
Because if I can overcome your objection before you have it, then you don't have the opportunity to have that objection. And we do that so, by proper questioning and scripting and all kinds of stuff we teach. So, so how much of that is anticipation versus experience? Well, if you look at any organization that has a sales team that's been in place for any amount of time, whatever they're selling, their sales team can tell you the top five or six objections. They get them all the time. The same objections, no matter what it is, your sales team's getting them. So if we already know those objections are coming, that is through the experience of having done it, then we build a system around those objections. That's what we do, right? Why are you looking? When are you looking? Who have you shopped with? Have you looked at pricing? You know, all these questions that we, and it's all about the questions and we draw them out. Uh, if we can draw out all the questions around those objections, then they won't have the opportunity to have them down the road. Do, do you see that as applying equally to startups? Because I, I can, I can, I, I follow the logic of that with established businesses that have a sales team and an, and a more or less pattern, uh, mm -hmm. which is really what you're describing. What about a new company? I mean, I, I have a new product, a new business, a new solution. Uh, I, I, I don't yet quite fully understand the objections. How, how do you apply sales psychology there? Well, so here's a big one, right? So I call, I call this the first objection and it applies to every product, every sale and every salesperson. You know what the first objection is in any sales process? First objection is that you are a salesperson and people distrust salespeople because they think they're gonna get sold and they're afraid of the unknown that you might use your sales magic voodoo to make them do something they don't want to do. So if I already know going into this process that you don't trust me, not me personally, I'm a great guy, I got kids, I teach, I coach, but with my salesperson hat on, I am a distrustful person. If I already know that, then the first objection I have to overcome is overcome the objection of who I am. And so I will build a sales script around that, right? That will help you lower that wall of mistrust, we call it, because your client's sitting there in a defensive posture the minute they lay eyes on you. We have to get around that wall of mistrust. So we have to start with that, right? We know that people buy from people they like and they trust and professional and all those things, but we got to get past that wall of mistrust first. Then whatever your product is, I mean, come on, if you've been in sales for any amount of time, you can figure out what those objections are going to be. I mean, pick any, any product and I can, it's going to be, I'm not ready today. I'm only looking, the price is too high. This is not in my budget. You know, it's not the right time of year for a company to do this. Well, then why did you call me? Why are we here in the first place? You know, we can figure those things out pretty handily. I think that first of all, everything you're saying is very, very true. I've, I have a, a long history in sales. Um, I think I've been successful in sales because I don't sell what I don't believe in. And so mm -hmm. I tend to come across, you know, I am also the worst person to sell to. Uh, I, if, if you cold called me, I am just a jerk. I really am. Even though I understand it, I get it. I know, I know how hard it is and everything, but I just don't have the time for it. Right. And so I'm, I'm kind of brutal in that way, which I'm trying to work on to better myself. But, uh, from a sales standpoint, you know, always trying to lower that that wall of mistrust, as as you put it, is the first. I always see it as the first thing because you want to. For me, we we are in a more of a relationship building industry. I, I work in freight. We're moving. We're moving things, and a lot mm -hmm. of times there's just a lot of trust that has to be established in order to be effective. And so, mm -hmm. so the first thing we have to do is just like you're saying, get it, get over that person's perception of who I am. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not coming in with a dog and pony, pony show. I'm not coming in with, you know, a script of, you know, trigger words and all this other kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I just need to know what you're doing so I can apply, uh, you know, hopefully my knowledge and, and whatever tools I have at my disposal to help you grow. And that's, that's how we do it. And so I think one of, one of the things PJ that, that a lot of salespeople don't understand, and I, I teach this a lot is whatever your product or service is, tell me why they should buy it yeah. and tell me why they should buy it from you. Because if you can't answer those two things pretty handily, then they're not going to buy it and they're not going to buy it from you, right? I had a, a, a guy call me that he was working for me when I was doing a project out in Portland and he called me and said, hey, I've broken off on my own and I'm going to start selling this product and I need, to get, I need to get past the gatekeeper in these companies. What's the slick line to get past the gatekeeper? I said, well, why should they buy your product? And he goes, well, because uh, they give better customer service. I'm like, well, that's a bullshit answer. 
nobody's going to say that. What else you got? He goes, well, I care about their employees. I'm like, that's even worse. Nobody believes that. He's like, well, what should I say? I said, I don't know. You tell me, why should I buy your product and why should I buy it from you? And this is not something you might figure out in five minutes, but until you figure it out, I don't know how to help you. Once you figure it out, you don't need me anymore. That's awesome. Interesting. I, 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 there are a couple of things I want to respond uh, to some of what you said, PJ. First, I, I hope you're being a bit, uh, you know, a, a bit exaggerative in saying that you were, um, you're rude to people that, that I am, of course. Okay, good. This is, this is also uh, entertainment. So I'm going to, you know, I'm just, kidding. all right, got it. <laughs> well, I mean, if, for your benefit, Brian, for the benefit of the audience, I've, uh, I, I'm a recovering rude person. And, uh, and, and I've come to believe that there is absolutely no basis for, uh, for allowing oneself to, to be mean is, is valuing your own humanity above that of someone else. And I don't think that's okay. Uh, you can make a decision not to pick up the phone. You can also make the decision to let someone finish your sentence and let them know very politely you're not interested in thinking for their time. Um, Nobody likes telemarketers, but telemarketers have a job. Uh, and, you know, many of them are good, kind people trying to do their work. So, but that wasn't really the point I wanted to make. I just, I, I wanted for the audience sake, because I know you, PJ, for the audience to know that you're not one of those mean people that yells and no, does no, no. inappropriate things. Uh, I, I did want to say that, you know, but what you said prompted me to think again about the title of your book, uh, Brian. And particularly the first word, which is no, um, and and I'm talking about the book, the No, the Psychology of Sales and Negotiations, and it makes me think about something that someone I don't know well but met over the holiday break shared with me, and a very very successful individual. He asked me what the most important word was, um, and actually the word I came up with was, at least in his mind, wrong. I said it's love. He said no, the most important word is no, it's no. Uh, because the word no protects the most valuable thing you have, which is your time. And and I would say that a lot of times customers say no to you, and maybe to tie this to what you're saying, Brian, because you haven't yet given them a compelling reason to believe that what it is that you're going to do for them is going to save them time, increase the quality of their lives, uh, make them happier. Um, and those things aren't easy. There's a reason that being an entrepreneur and a successful one at that, uh, oftentimes includes many failures. Because being able to recognize that a certain approach that appeals to you doesn't necessarily resonate with the marketplace is A, really humbling. <laughs> B, we are wired to resist it. Um, how do you train someone out of that, Brian? How do you get someone to accept or can you even, I mean, or is this something where again, it boils down to the raw intangibles that lead someone to become a successful entrepreneur to be successful? Are you pre-wired to be okay when your hypothesis proves not to be true? You know, if I was going to relate this back to the sales environment or the sales world, I Teach sales organizations. One of the first things I always do when I walk into a sales organization is I say, you know, prior to walking in, I'll ask the, the, the management and say, what is your normal close ratio on, on for your sales team? And they'll tell me 30%. I'll say, great. So the first thing I'll do when I walk into a sales team, uh, I'll say, hey, guys, I want to tell you something. Your leads suck. And they're always like, we agree. The leads do suck. We've been trying to say that. I'm like, no, 70% of them suck. 30% of them are good. And if you're not closing at 30%, then we have some work to do, right? So one of the things we have to understand, in fact, I just submitted this to Forbes today, is that if you are in a sales environment or even an entrepreneurial environment, and you think that you're going to have a 100% success rate, you're going to fail, in this case, 70% of the time. And so what we want to do is we want to shift your mind from everything has to be a success to everything has to have an answer. So if I'm going into a sales environment, my job is not to get you to say yes, my job is to get an answer from you. And that answer is a yes or a no, or a clear direction, which means I have something I have to do to follow up with you. 
as long as I can get an answer, then I'm successful 100% of the time. If all I'm ever doing is trying to win, then I'm going to be a failure 70% of the time. In the entrepreneurial world, it's the same thing, right? Every business you do probably isn't going to succeed. But if we know that some of them will and some of them won't, then we focus on the ones that did well and the ones that don't. They just didn't, you know, and we move on. We take our, uh, take our, we learn our lessons and we make our next business more successful. Sage words, <laughs> sage words. I, I could have used you. Uh, we, we should have been buds a while ago. That would have, would have helped out a lot actually. Um, <laughs> shifting gears really quick. You had, you had shared a very interesting quote with us um, where you had said that your background isn't where your journey ends. It's where it begins and that success mm -hmm. or failure depends on your mindset and your willingness to learn, which I believe is a thousand percent true. Can mm -hmm. you share how this principle of continuous learning has guided your own personal journey and an example of how it turned a potential failure into a success? You know, this is a long, complicated answer. And, I'll, and I'll, my, my quip is this. Have you ever heard people say, the faster you fail, the faster you succeed? Yes. You have to I've fail to it. succeed. I cringe every time I hear that because that is complete nonsense. Failure leads to failure. Failure leads to failure. Learning from failure leads to success. If you fail and never learn what you did wrong, then you're going to do the same thing over again. The failure isn't going to help you unless you learn from it. And too many people forget the learning part. And we talk about how to get from where you are to where you need to be or where you want to be. I, I usually call this the 100 steps to success. That means there's 100 lessons or failures I have to go through in order for me to get from where I am to where I want to be. Anybody can succeed at anything they want to succeed at as long as they learn every single lesson that needs to be learned along the way until you get to where it is you want to go and have that success. Too many people quit before they get there. They're like, oh my God, I failed 15 times. Okay, but did you learn 15 lessons? Don't do that again. And then keep pushing forward and forward and forward until you've, you know, I, I was in business for 15, 16 years struggling before we sold the, the first big company. And it happened like that. I mean, we went from we went from making a hundred grand a year to a million a year to two million a year in, I mean, in a, in a matter of 12 months. And we got acquired by this private equity firm and then another venture capital firm after that. But that's because I had to go through 15 years of learning. And that's because of where I started. I started with no education, right? I had to learn every single lesson from the ground up. Nobody gave me money. I didn't have parents. I didn't have backers. I, did, I didn't think I needed a mentor for 15 years. I thought I was smart enough and had a big enough ego I could do it myself. Huge mistake, by the way. It wasn't until I found my first mentor that I actually had some success in business. But too many people fall into that trap. I, I failed for a long time. I call myself a 20-year overnight success, right? Everybody, people today are like, oh my God, you're so successful. I'm like... You have no idea what I went through to get here. Like zero, okay? Uh, but they don't see that. So when I talk to entrepreneurs, I'm like, look, if you want to skip those steps, if you want to learn faster, and if you want to get to where you want to be much faster, then you need to bring in somebody who's been there and done that, who's made those mistakes, who can tell you that what you're doing is wrong or tell you which way to go, and they will significantly speed up your ability to get to that successful level you're looking for. If you don't, good luck. You're going to have to learn everything on your own, right? I just remember my, my, my story real quick is, you know, we were struggling and my partner who had funded a half a million dollars into our company, which I owed him back, came in one day and said, we're going to invest another $66,000. And I said, Steve, we haven't made any money in a year. Like we have lost, we, we haven't made $0 in this internet thing. And he kept saying, Brian, it's going to work. I've done this before. This is not my first rodeo. I'm telling you, this is going to work. This is how it works. And I was like, Steve, man, you're killing me, dude. I can't do it. I'm in debt. I'm going to go broke. I don't, I'm going to be bankrupt. I don't, I don't want to do this. I literally told my wife this morning, I want out. And he said, Brian, I'll make you a deal. You give me my equity back. I'll forgive your debt. We walk away as friends. I don't want the money to come between us. And I'm staring at a man who was probably worth 20 million and I'm worth 20 bucks. And he's offering me an out. And that ping pong ball is just bouncing in my head back and forth. Do I listen to me or do I listen to the guy that's done it? And it took me about two minutes. And I finally said, all right, Steve, 
If I'm going down, I'm going down with you. I'm in. And he said, all right, but I'm kind of pissed off at this whole conversation, so I don't ever want to have it again. And he got walked out of my office. 18 months later, we sold the company for $80 million. Wow. And I was this close to losing everything. That's when I decided we- to stop taking my own damn advice. <laughs> which 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 touches on on a number of themes that I think are worth teasing out. Um, there's no there's no question about it. There is something about being an entrepreneur that attracts a certain personality type. Generally speaking, people that are relatively confident about their abilities and or that they have come up with a mousetrap or solution that the marketplace really really needs. There's a degree of arrogance to entrepreneurship that I would say, when it's harnessed, is healthy. But to build on what you just said, it can the line between healthy arrogance, which is conducive to pushing through obstacles, and blind, um, absolute certainty in one one's own wisdom is a fine line. And the older I get, and I just turned 50, the easier it is for me to see it when I talk to young entrepreneurs. And and entrepreneurs are not so young, even. You can tell fairly quickly who is so sure that they have it all right, that they are far more likely to fail. And who is capable of doing perhaps the most important thing you can do when you're not there yet, which is listen better. Listen better. It's very hard to do. It's interesting, Tal. I I, I talked to some guys who run an incubator. They don't call it an incubator. They call it an accelerator up in Columbus, Ohio. And they make these entrepreneurs come in and go through like six weeks worth of classes. They have a great idea. They have a, a product they're trying to bring to market. They make them go through six weeks of classes with world-class entrepreneurs to teach them all the things they need to know. And at the end of the six weeks, they, they either vote you in or they vote you out. And so if you've been voted in, that means you've successfully gone through the six weeks of classes. You've learned the things. These guys like you. And I, and I was asking him, I said, well, what's your success rate after that? He said about 50%. And I said, of the 50% who fail, what's the biggest reason they fail? And he said, oh, that's easy. They start thinking they're smarter than us and they don't listen anymore. I said, that's, that's about right. You let your ego get in the way. You think you have to have all the answers. You think that everything you think is right, is right. And that's going to be your biggest detriment. You're exactly right, Tal. I, I just wrote a blog post about that. And I admit it. Again, I, I've talked about being a recovering mean person. Um, I also wasn't a great listener. Um, like many entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs from where I'm originally from, which is Israel. There's a brashness. There's a, I know this, just sit back. You ask me the question, I'll give you the answer. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage. And it takes a lot of uh, hard-earned wisdom to recognize, actually, it's not possible that I have all the answers. If I'm privileged enough to have someone who's accomplished anything in their lives, willing to have a conversation with me and share their thoughts. The least I can do is listen extremely well with an open mind. Then go back and do your thinking and do your analysis, right? There's no, I don't think what you're saying, Brian, is just because someone's been there, they're absolutely going to get it right. I don't think, first of all, there is no such thing as uh, always getting it right. Business is always at its core an art, not a science, okay? Mm -hmm. But there are things that are going to lead you closer to the outcomes you want and going to increase your odds of achieving the end result that you're starting out for, which is either build a great business that can sustain you and your family or sell it. Okay. And if you're just not willing to listen, if you just think that you have all the answers, I mean, maybe you're right. And there's some people that are like that, right? Um, some people that some of the world's biggest success stories on some level or another are those stories. 
but they are so rare. <laughs> There's a reason that, you know, there are only a handful of billionaires on earth and a whole lot more people that either achieved some success or achieved no success because they were or weren't willing to learn. And I think ultimately, Brian, the takeaway from this episode for anyone listening to it, and I think this has been one of our best episodes, is, you know what, you're sitting in front of a guy who's accomplished a lot in his life. And the thing I'm taking away from this, from you, is how important it is to not assume you know it all, not assume you have it all right. Um, sure, you have to be prepared to be successful. You have to do your homework. You have to think about what you should be doing differently and what you should be doing the same. But ultimately, the importance of having people around you, advisors, mentors, as you said in the pre-interview, heck, I mean, the world's most, most successful leader, Tim Cook, has a group of advisors. Mm -hmm. The man's accomplished a lot. Can we agree on that? Uh, right? Yep. If, if it's good enough for them, how can it not be good enough for you? Exactly. You know, I've, I've, exactly. Been, I've been in the startup world. Uh, I think we all have, obviously. And um, you see a lot of startups go by the wayside because of death by hubris, right? You have a, you have a founder that just doesn't get out of their own way. And a lot of times, especially on the sales side, founder-led sales is uh, uh, that, that's a death knell to a lot of companies because this, the founder can only take it so far. And then hopefully you build a lot of people in, you bring a lot of people in that can help build your vision and, and you bring in people that are smarter than you. And, and, mm -hmm. and just like you said, other mentors and, and other advisors who can help curate uh, the future that you want to build for the company. But a lot of times, unfortunately, I started it, I know all the answers, and you know I'm going to take us over to finish line. And it doesn't work that way most of the time. Let me give you my last quick story on the dropout multimillionaire. So I wrote the book. It was my second book. And I submitted it to the publisher. And he came back and she said, Brian, and I had designed a cover for it. She said, Brian, your cover is terrible. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is, this, I like this cover. I'm, I'm successful. You're, you're just an employee that works at a publishing company. I'm a multimillionaire. I've built and sold. She said, Brian, your cover sucks. I'm telling you, it sucks. And I argued with her for like five minutes. And then a Sunday dawned on me. Wait a minute. I'm the guy that sits around all day telling people they need to take advice from people smarter than me. She's probably done a thousand of these and I've done one. Okay. I said, I apologize. You go the direction you want to go. And the book turned into a Wall Street Journal bestseller. So... <laughs> Bring in people that are smarter than you that know what they're doing and, and don't be so egotistical that you think you have all the answers. By the way, I have two things. On that point, I, I'm, I would like to emphasize that just because you recognize and you obviously recognize how important it is to listen to other people does not mean that you're immune to occasionally forgetting that. Yes. On my monitor, I have taped in two different places, one right by where I look at the camera and one at the bottom. It says, listen better, talk less. I have that on my monitor twice because I know my tendencies to talk a lot, okay? So try to think about what, you know, training wheels you could use, I'm speaking to the audience, to help remind you to take a breath and listen to other people. The other is I wanna, I wanna, I wanna cite Eddie Wilson, uh, the founder and CEO of Collective Influence, also the king of exits with over 90 companies sold. He was a guest of ours, in fact, mm -hmm. episode one of season two. A uh, hugely successful individual, and and he gave us this quote in in his episode. We we've been promoting it because so I have it handy. It says, "When I coach our coaches, I always say that ninety percent of all business problems are the actual founder, owner, creator, or manager. You can focus on the processes and systems as much as you want, but if the problems are with the founder, creator, or manager, and you're not dealing with those, you're never really going to solve the business problem. And that that is true. So if you are the problem." You know, and it's really hard to see that you're the problem. Oh, yeah. Even though we look at ourselves in the mirror, we spend more time with ourselves than we do with anyone else. Recognizing that we are the problem is, gosh, that takes a whole lot of work. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, but if you're if you're willing and able to look at yourself objectively and and also look at the evidence, you may find that you do need to listen better and talk less. And I'm by, and by the way, I'm not doing that too well right now. I'm doing a lot of talking and not not as much listening, but hopefully the point, the point's well made. Your, your point is, I, 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 I said I was going to tell you the last story. I got one more. 
I have an assistant that works for me and she comes to me one day and I was just launching my new consulting company. And when I get into that launch mode, you guys have been in launch mode. You're like laser focused, like a hundred percent. You're, you're operating at like light speed. And she comes to me, she says, you need to settle down. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you are short. When you talk to people, your emails are bullet points. You don't even say hello. You're coming across as, as mean to people. You got to stop doing that. And I was like, holy crap, you're right. Even your assistant might be able to walk in and tell you what you're doing wrong to your point. So I had to start being more gentle, you know, in the way I deal with people and get out of my laser focus. If you ever hang out with Tal, which I suggest that you do, since you guys are tromping in the same backyards all the time, um, <laughs> you, you'll find that, that Tal is a, is a man that is rooted in kindness. And even though he says he's a recovering mean person, uh, I bet you that there was a strong streak, streak of kindness through there the whole time. And, and he tries to impart that in everything that he does. And it's one of the things I love I don't about think we. I don't think we mean to be that way. It's just, you know, that's, I'm just, that's, I'm a bullet point three thirty thousand foot. Yeah. Let's move a hundred miles an hour, cut you off half sentence. I already know what you're going to say. So I'm going to answer your question for you. And I got to stop doing that. I get it. So yeah. it's something I want to work on. So lastly, let's, let's cover uh, your story because it's, it's one of overcoming adversity and continuously learning, which of course is super important. It's also about learning the value of wisdom and, and, having the humility to uh, seek advice and support. And you mentioned Tim Cook uh, having his own group of advisors, right? It doesn't matter how successful you are. You always, you can always use a little guidance. What advice mm -hmm. would you give people in our audience who are struggling with asking for help? Because that's a lot of times that's a maybe embarrassing or maybe, uh, you know, messing with their, their, you know, their own self-worth or whatever. What, what can you advise people who are struggling to ask for help, whether they're too shy or fear of rejection, how did it break through that inner resistance and didn't make that dare to ask for help? And also I always tell people, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 I'll finish. I was going to say, I always tell people any decision you make is either emotional or intellectual. And you can't think on both levels at the same time. If you're thinking emotionally, think about people that are doing crazy things. They're not thinking intellectually. And people that are really intellectual generally aren't thinking emotionally. If you are afraid to ask for help, that is an emotional decision that you are making not to ask for that help because it's going to somehow violate inside you that you were worthwhile or hurt your self-image or I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing. That's an emotional response. At some point, you have to stop and saying, is this emotional or is this intellectual? And if it's emotional, you got to flip the switch and go to the intellectual side or have somebody else that you trust come in and ask that same question. Am I thinking emotionally or intellectually? If you're thinking emotionally, then have them help you make the switch and go ask. I'm telling you, personally in my life, I never succeeded at any level until I had a mentor and somebody to help me. And the more I've gotten into it, I have two coaches that I work with today. I, I, I've told you guys, Tim Cook has a coach, right? Every corporation in America has a board of directors. You guys probably had board of directors in your companies before you sold them. This is what we call people who are advisors who aren't necessarily doing exactly what you do, but they bring you a point of view and a perspective and a 360 degree look that can help you make better decisions. So if everybody out there who's successful is doing this, then the intellectual decision is that you need to do it too. Yeah. Just make sure you vet that person. Make sure that they're actually who they say they are. They've done what they say they've done and they can give you the advice that you're looking to get. It's the best decision you'll make. And I, I, first of all, I a thousand percent agree with that. Um, one of the people that we had talked to before is, and that's also coming out the season is a chat we had with Larry Kazanoff, who is a film producer and uh, film director, been in Hollywood a long time. Um, mm -hmm. He came out with a book about uh, having people having a touch of madness, right? The, those that are successful have a touch of madness. And, and mm -hmm. so we had, we had gone a little bit into that. And, you know, and this guy has produced some of the, most oh successful God. movies in Terminator Hollywood history. So and, yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. him on your yeah. site. Yeah. Platoon. Yeah. And the, the guy's amazing. Um, and one of the things, you know, he was like, when you have, have that little bit of madness, not to be afraid to go ahead and, and make the move to make the ask. Right. And I've always, my personal philosophy has always been, you don't get what you don't ask for, mm -hmm. but it's an ask, right? It's, it's, it could be it could be uh, impeding someone or, or or taking up their time. What do you think if you if you're going to an advisor if you're looking for help and you finally get past your own self hurdles? 
what do you think is an appropriate ask to make when you're reaching out to someone that you don't know, or, or maybe you don't know, or has a lot on their plate? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you get that sweet spot? You know, I break, uh, I call it mentors and coaching down into three categories. And this is me personally, I call it relational, technical, and tactical. Okay. So a technical coach or a technical mentor to me is somebody who's in your industry doing what you've done that you need technical help on how to specifically achieve a goal, right? If you're building Park Mobile, which is one of your companies, right? Park Mobile, you might find somebody that's in that space and knows how to get that software stuff done and knows how to get into those contracts with the governments or whatever. It's a technical coach. A relational coach is a person that, man, I need some help with just the way I'm thinking, the way I'm, 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 I'm dealing with people and my life and my family. Those are, those are relational coaches. And then there are tactical guys. And tactical guys are the guys, I do tactical, by the way. I come in and do operational analysis and P&L analysis and sales and sales management analysis and build systems for you. So the first thing I would tell you is whatever it is that you think you're challenged with, figure out which one of those you're looking for. Because I couldn't do the technical side and I'm not a relational guy but I can help you with your internal operations. On the other hand, you find somebody who's relational, they might not be the person that's gonna give you the, tech, the technical or the tactical, right? So find somebody that's specific to that issue that you're dealing with, and then just go in and say, hey man, I, uh, I've got this business, I'm doing this and this, I know you've had a lot of success, and was wondering if I could maybe have a few minutes of your time and go from there. So uh, I've had people ask me all the time for help and I'll, I'll give them a meeting. I'm not going to spend, you know, forever with them, but I'll give them a meeting. And then if they want to jump into one of our programs, they can. Yeah. I think, uh, if, if I was to, uh, wrap that into a bow, um, and I think the question is a good one, PJ, I think what the ask is, is where I think people who get past their own, you know, inner struggle to ask for help oftentimes get wrong. They don't do enough um, to assess who it is that they're talking to and recognize where that person can actually assist them. It'd be like mm -hmm. going to a heart surgeon and asking about your teeth, okay? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't do that. There's a reason you wouldn't do that, right? It, it, would, it would seem silly to you. And yet we may find ourselves in front of someone that has been successful who doesn't understand the industry we're trying to get into, and we're going to ask them questions that they couldn't possibly answer. On the other hand, you can anticipate what they might be able to help you on and be more pointed. And I think that's, that's your, that's Brian's, uh, that's, that's the case you're making. If you're going to go ahead and make the ask, at least know what, what the right ask is before you make it. I'll and take it one step further. And I, I've said this many times. If you're in, in, in my, my arena is five to 50 million revenue. You don't need to be asking a billionaire for advice. Because their thinking is so far out from where you are, it's probably not going to be helpful. Like, I'm not going to go talk to Elon Musk about how to set up a trucking industry. You know why? Because when he gets uh, stuck in traffic, he decides to dig under the earth and build a tunnel. That's just not something you and I can do. So he's not worried about scheduling and traffic patterns. He's just like, well, screw it. We'll just build a tunnel underneath it, right? He can't help. Find somebody 20 steps ahead of you, not a million steps ahead of you, because that person's fresh out of the fight. They're fresh in, in, out of the decision-making. They're fresh out of the failures and the successes. And they can go, oh, my God, let me tell you what you need to do, right? So what, what sage advice? Well, let, let's end on that extraordinarily useful note. Uh, our guest today was Brian Will. Uh, Brian, let me ask you a quick question. If someone in the audience wanted to get a hold of you or participate in your programs, how, how could they reach you? Pretty much everything for me, for my podcasts and books and coaching programs, is on my website, which is brianwillmedia.com. I normally say www.brianwillmedia.com, but my assistant said I sound old when I say that, so I'm not allowed to say www anymore. Well, you just did, but that's all right. We'll <laughs> pretend you didn't. Um, Brian Will um, is the best-selling author of multiple hugely successful books. He is a sought-after speaker uh, and, con and consultant, um, and uh, he's, I think, shared wisdom with this audience where uh, if if you are the kind of person that has it in you to persevere, which as we've established with the episodes of Bit Braving Business is, is something you must have in order to succeed in business. You must be someone capable of persevering. So if you have that, check that box, listen to what Brian had to say uh, about both seeking out help, about listening to other voices, about recognizing what it is that the customer, why the customer is saying no, what it is that would get them to say yes. 
uh, tons and tons of wisdom wrapped up in in this episode. And uh, you know, I may go back and listen to it a second time myself because I I'm in the process of uh, launching my new startup, and uh, and it's always a good idea to uh, to freshen up on on some of these uh, some of these very valued skills. Brian, it's been a huge, huge pleasure and an honor uh, to have you on the episode. Uh, I'm so grateful to you. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back uh, in a future uh, episode down the road and uh, continue this conversation. I would love that. Alan PJ, thanks for having me. This was awesome. And that's a wrap, folks. Like what you heard and want to support the show? Please follow our page on LinkedIn and Facebook. Visit us on YouTube. And please like and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. You can also see exclusive content, subscribe for free to our weekly blog, support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. 